0: Welcome to the first presentation in the Lumen Christi Institute's Spring Webinar Lecture Series. I'm Michael Le Chevalier, Associate Director of the Lumen Christi Institute. For the past 23 years, the Lumen Christi Institute has brought the Catholic intellectual tradition to the life to life for students and faculty at the University of Chicago and across the nation through master classes, lectures, summer seminars, and non-credit courses. Each quarter Lumen Christi offers a non credit course to the scholarly community around the University of Chicago that highlights aspects of the Christian intellectual tradition. The courses often treat a biblical topical or historical theme with guest presenters from the University of Chicago or nearby institutions. Recent courses include St. Paul examining the major letters of the apostle to the nations, a series on modern science and Christian faith and a series on Hillbilly Thomas, Flannery O'Connor's Catholic Imagination. Holding this spring series online allows us to share it with a larger audience who will thus have a taste of our campus programming and may help us to develop a larger online presence. You can stay updated on all our programming by visiting our website at www.lumenchristie.org. Let me now turn things over to Robert Porval. An alumnus of the University of Chicago's Divinity School where he studied medieval education. He now coordinates part of the Lumen Christi Institute's programming for undergraduates, including this series on reason and wisdom in the medieval Christian thought. Thank you, Michael. As
1: Michael said, uh, this tonight's lecture is part of a series on reason and wisdom and medieval Christian thoughts. The course offers entryways into the rich treasuries of spiritual and theological thought in the Middle Ages, especially the course highlights the persistent tension in medieval thinkers between contemplative and rational, that is dialectical ways of knowing God. For example, in upcoming weeks, we'll host Professor Aaron Canty on Anselm of Canterbury, Professor Brian Carl on Thomas Aquinas and Professor Barbara Newman on Hildegard of Bingen. At the end of the session, I'll be moderating the, the question and answer, reading your questions. If you can pose a question at any time using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, we'll privilege at the outset the questions from students in, in the audience. If you have any difficulty with the connection, you can always find the link in the live stream in this video or at the top left of the Zoom, of your Zoom screen, I hope. There is no presenter who would be better suited to open this course than uh, Bernard McGinn. Professor McGinn is the Naomi Shenston Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology of of History of Christianity in the Divinity School and on the Committees of Medieval Studies and General Studies at the University of Chicago. He has written extensively on the history of apocalyptic thought, Christian spirituality, mysticism. He's an internationally sought speaker and a regular contributor to Lumen Christi programming. Professor McGinn, let me hand the floor over to you. And could you, do you want to unmute yourself and begin your, your...
2: I'm unmuting myself.
1: Good, all right, we've got you.
2: Oh, thanks be to God. I feel like I finally moved into the modern world <laughs> at my age. Um, well, I want to thank everybody, the um, uh, please, who are, men and women who are listening to this And it's a very new kind of technology for myself, but I especially thank Michael and and Robert and the whole technical staff at Lumen Christie for for setting this up and giving me the opportunity to talk about someone who is very, very important for me, um, Gregory the Great. Uh, Gregory the Great lived in hard times. He was born in 540, which is the year when the great plague, the bubonic plague, first struck Western Europe and devastated Constantinople and Italy and many other places, and then continued on for uh, for, for many, many years after that. So he was familiar with what we're all undergoing today in, uh, in a number of different ways. And I would just, on that note, ask you to, you know, pray for all those who are suffering through our our current plague and keep them in your your mind. He also lived in the middle of a time of tremendous turmoil uh, as the ancient world really collapsed, uh, particularly in Italy and elsewhere. I mean, he was a young man at the time of the Ostrogothic Wars as one wave of barbarians came into Italy and uh, he grew up and uh, lived uh, in the middle of the last and in some ways worst of these barbarian invasions in Italy, which are the the Lombard invasions uh, beginning about 560, 68 or not. Gregory lived on a kind of hinge time. It was the hinge between late antiquity and the early middle ages. So there's many ways of saying, you know, was Gregory a late antique figure, a late Roman? And he was but also was Gregory, you know, the first medieval figure or the first medieval Pope certainly, who set much of the agenda for what was going to uh, happen in the next, uh, you know, 10, 12 or uh, 10 centuries at least. So he's a fascinating figure and somebody who uh, I think repays our, our knowledge today. His world is a different world. He's not necessarily easy to read, but if you're going to understand the Catholic tradition Throughout its history, especially in the medieval period, you have to understand Gregory the Great. Even the reformers, Martin Luther, loved Gregory the Great. He said he was one of the few good popes and he knew Gregory's uh, writings in and out. So so Gregory is of of exceptional importance. Let me just give you a very brief uh, sketch of his his life. As I said, he's born in 540 from very high aristocratic uh, circles in Rome uh, and was given a very good education. Uh, and, but uh, around the year 573 or so, he converted to the monastic life, and his famous letter to Leander, Bishop Leander from Spain, who was a good friend of his, uh, you know, talks about his his conversion. is one of the most moving personal documents, actually, from uh, from from late uh, late antiquity. I don't really have the time to read that out, but I would strongly recommend that you might might read it on your own. So he converts to a monastic life. He sets up a monastery on his family estate in Rome, in that a church, the Church of San Andrea and St Andrew on the Chalian hill. And you can go and see if you travel to Rome, go and see his episcopal uh, throne, very modest one that's there. And then he's, he's kind of drafted into the uh, bureaucracy, of the, uh, the the Church of Rome, which had really taken over governing the city of Rome and the areas around it because the imperial uh, state was far away in Constantinople and it had to be the local bishops, especially the Bishop of Rome, who were gonna run things, deal with barbarian invasions, deal with running a city, deal with all the kinds of problems involved with plagues and other kinds of, uh, of, of difficulties. And so Gregory it becomes uh, the deacon Uh, of Pope Pelagius and the deacon is, you know, the number two guy really in charge of running things within uh, the city. And then uh, the Pope sends him to Constantinople in 579 to be the representative from the city of Rome to the imperial power, the emperor in Constantinople. And he's there for about 10 uh, or or 11 years. Uh, This was Gregory's writing opportunity because he brought along a number of his monks with him, and under their importuning, he uh, they they asked him, you know, tell us about uh, the book of Job. It's a very difficult book. And so Gregory gives a series of lectures to his monks on the Book of Job over about a ten or twelve year period, which becomes his greatest work, his longest work, certainly, the moral interpretation of Job, the moralia in uh, in Job. And then he's called back to Rome after his career as a kind of diplomat. And in uh, 590, Pope Pelagius dies of the plague. And uh, Gregory's unanimously elected Pope. Uh, now, I think we have a slide here, which is gonna be very, very important because uh, at that stage, Gregory uh, institutes a, a procession, a penitential procession in Rome. This is a late medieval view of this. I think it's probably 14th, maybe 15th century he institutes a penitential procession through Rome to beg God to take the plague away from the city. And you can see some of the people there in the procession, some of them just dropping dead, presumably. And finally, God rewards him by having the archangel Michael, which you can see at the top of that kind of a castle looking thing there, appear at the top of the what was then the mausoleum of the emperor Hadrian, but sheathing his sword as a sign that, um, you know, God's mercy was going to descend upon the city of Rome. And that's from that time on, it's called the Castel San Angelo. So Gregory's elected Pope in 590. And he has a great uh, difficulty, uh, you know, accepting this because he wanted to flee the Rome. Uh, you know, the, he wanted to be a monk, a monk. He wanted to have a very quiet life. And I just want to read you here a brief passage from his letter to Leander at the beginning of the commentary on Job and he says later the burden of pastoral care was laid on my shoulders so I objected and resisted because the ministry of the altar was already burdensome and now now he's Pope now I find myself more and more unequal to this task I find it all the harder to bear for that I am not refreshed by any encouraging self-confidence Even those of us who are believed to serve the inner mysteries are caught up in the outer concerns because the times of the world are now thrown into turmoil by increasing evils as the end approaches. Gregory was pretty convinced that the end of the world was near, but this did not prevent him from engaging in in fantastic energy throughout the course of his pontificate, both in governing the church in writing and sending out missionaries and, and the like. So he's really, uh, in that sense, a very uh, remarkable figure. So he's Pope for uh, 11 years, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he's Pope for about 14 years and dies in 604, having, you know, really been a, an amazing figure in, in terms of the uh, late antiquity. And this transition that I've spoken about between Late Antiquity and the uh, and the Middle Ages. On his tomb, there is inscribed a Latin inscription, Consul Dei, the Council of God. Those of you who know your Roman history, remember that the, the, the Consules, the Councils, were the heads of Rome. Now it's the Pope who is the consul, but he's not the consul Respub- Repubblica Romanae of the Roman Republic. Is the consul day. So, what about uh, uh, Gregory's uh, Gregory's writings, uh, and which, which are very very extensive, and uh, so let me just say a little bit about that before I talk more about the, about his thought. Um, Gregory's major work are his famous Moralia in Job, Moralia in Job, as as they're known. Uh, which are one of the longest of all patristic works that he wrote for his monks while they were living in in Constantinople. They're 35 books written over about uh, 11 or 12 years. Uh, in the modern critical edition, they, they're about 1400 pages of Latin. There's an old translation made of the whole of this in 1900 pages back in the, um, uh, in the 19th, mid 19th century. There's a modern French translation. It's one of the great classic works. Um, people who've read through all of this say, well, he talks about everything except Job. He does talk about Job. But you know he really felt that to talk about the book of Job was to talk about the essence of Christianity. And you might ask why? That's because he sees Job as a biblical type, a biblical, in that sense, forerunner and prototype of Christ. Christ and his sufferings but not just Christ who suffered on the cross but the totus Christus the entire Christ that is head and body and so the sufferings of Job and Job's endurance and Job's persistence is not just a message about renouncing the figure of Christ in Christ's life but it's a figure about the life of the church that all members of the church as members of Christ are going to have to Live the way Job did. That is, they're going to have to endure, and they're going to have to uh, accept uh, accept suffering. So there's a, it's a tremendously rich work. As I said, it's not much read today, possibly because it's so it, it's so long. But it's one of the great classic works of uh, of the patristic of the patristic past. Gregory also wrote a lot more. Um, he wrote. Uh, Again, he's primarily a scriptural writer. And along with the uh, moral interpretation of Job, he writes a series of homilies on the book of Ezekiel. There are two books there with about uh, 22 homilies. And you say, why Ezekiel? Ezekiel was the hardest book of the Old Testament to understand. And so he doesn't comment on the whole of the book of Ezekiel, but chapters 1 through 4 and then chapter 40... These are written while he's Pope in the 590s. And they were probably given not just to monks, but also to a, a more mixed audience of monastics and educated Christians. In some ways, uh, you know, this is one of the heart, the heart centers of, um, of, of Gregory's uh, mysticism. But he also spoke in a more popular vein. And so I would also advise people to read his gospel homilies. These were 40 gospel homilies that he delivered to the congregations in Rome. Again, probably in the early uh, 1590s to 1593. And if you note, there's three kind of different audiences here, the Moralia were given to his monks. The Gospel homilies were given to the Roman congregation. The homilies on Ezekiel are kind of an in-between genre given to uh, a variety of, uh, of, of the population. Um, Along with these, he has a commentary on the Song of Songs, a commentary on 1 Kings, and then he also wrote a very, very important book for the Middle Ages, what he called the Liber Regulae Pastoralis, the Book of Pastoral Rule. The Book of Pastoral Rule, and this was a handbook for bishops, a handbook for bishops, and he wanted bishops to live according to a regula, a rule, just as he as a monk had lived according to a regula. So he was in a sense trying to write a kind of rule for clergy that he realized couldn't live as monks, but still had to had to live according to certain kinds of a uh, certain kind of regular uh, regular life. So he talks about the requirements of the pastoral office, the life of the pastor, how the pastor should teach, and all the uh, virtues that go along with the pastoral life. Written for primarily for bishops. But throughout the Middle Ages, really read by all the clergy as the kind of, you know, their, their how-to-do-it how to book about how to be a good, uh, a good pastor. Finally, I should mention, I'm not sure this is, oh yeah, the dialogues in four books, Dialoghi. Um, these are accounts of the lives and miracles of the Italian saints of his era. That is of the primarily of the sixth century, uh, late fourth and, and uh, late fifth and sixth centuries, and uh, they're filled with miracles. They're filled with very polite stories, but they're also very significant about the kind of popular spirituality of the uh, of the time. And they include in book two our only real source for Benedict, Benedict of Nursia. It's the life of Benedict. And otherwise, you know, Benedict is almost unknown except for the Rule of Benedict. Uh, Gregory was not a Benedictine. He was a monk, but he didn't follow Benedict's rule. But he recognized that Benedict was the greatest monastic figure of Italy of his time, and he wanted to uh, convey that message to uh, to later society. And this was immensely popular. Uh, everybody read this. is one of the classics of uh, of, of hagiographical hey, literature. And again, it's the second book of the, of the dialogues of, uh, of Gregory the Great. And by the way, uh, most of these shorter works are available in English. I won't wave the books at you here, they're off to my side. The Moralia no, there was, a, as I said, a mid 19th century translation, very difficult to read. There's a modern French translation. But all the other books that I've mentioned, the shorter ones, Are available in modern and good English translations and I think are certainly worth you know certainly worth looking at. Okay, so what about Gregory's theology? Well different scholars have considered it in different ways, uh, different Gregory scholars. The French scholar Claude Dagain spoke of Gregory's theology as a morality and spirituality of interiority, very important word. Uh, Another um, uh, French monk, Patrice Catry, has a wonderful phrase, I'm quoting here, Benedict gave Western monks a rule, Gregory gave them a mysticism. My friend Jean Leclerc spoke of (coughs) Gregory as the doctor of desire. That too is a wonderful phrase, doctor of desire. Another scholar of late antiquity, Jacques Fontaine, spoke of Gregory as a Moralist of conversion. I mean, all all of these um, characterizations are true. They just give you, you know, a certain aspect. Uh, I hope you're looking at this slide, which is very significant. You see Gregory as Pope. He's got a nice tiara on. And uh, a dove speaking in his ear. That, of course, is the Holy Spirit who is inspiring him as Gregory has this stylus in his hand. And that's his biographer, uh, the deacon it's Deacon John hiding out, but peering in and seeing this. This is the most popular image of Gregory in in Western in Western culture. <clears throat> so I want to talk uh, a little bit about um, Gregory's theology and his mysticism, and I'm going to divide this into two parts. Uh, first, Gregory is the master of spiritual exegesis. And then secondly, the, the fundamental lines of, uh, of Gregory's mysticism, which I think um, can be presented under the major headings of the terms compunctio, compunction, and contemplatio, contemplation. There's much more in Gregory in all those thousands of pages, but uh, let me say a little bit about it. Gregory founded his theology on exegesis. And he's one of the masters of the exegetical uh, tradition in, uh, in, in medieval history. Uh, for him, the Bible is the source of all truth. And he also has a very imaginative way of, you know, speaking about, uh, speaking about the Bible. Uh, he thinks of it as the door to truth, the forest of ultimate meanings. He speaks about it at times as under the watery images of the sea and the river. Uh, he talks of it about as a mountain we have to climb. Talks of it about as a flint stone, which can be struck to produce the flash of spiritual understanding. He speaks about it as food and drink. Speaks of it as a mirror in which we see ourselves and God. And uh, I hope we have a slide here. It's a slide seven. we do that about the famous? Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, this is a very famous text. Gregory is very long-winded and here he's apologizing for his long-windedness. One must be careful to search thoroughly whatsoever for his moral instruction for his hearers and should count the right method in ordering this discourse. If he turns aside for useful purposes, he's like a river. You know, the river flows down. If it meets an open valley, it flows into the open valley and waters it and then it flows back, et cetera, et cetera. this is an excuse for being a very discursive, uh, you know, scriptural interpreter. If he comes across something that is useful, he's going to go that way and then come back to his purpose. Because notice that phrase, he chanced to find at hand any occasion of seasonable edification. That's what the scripture is all about. It's about edification. If the interpreter finds that he should, as it were, force the streams of discourse towards the adjacent valley, and when he's gone on for five hundred pages, he should come back to the instruction that he really uh, he really intended. But that's uh, you know that's um, that's that's Gregory's mode of exegesis, and uh, this was often you know followed by later later medieval medieval thinkers. So Gregory's writings really meant to nourish what I like to call the Biblical culture of the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, throughout its history, especially in the early Middle Ages, it was a Biblical culture. All education was Biblically centered. And it was centered on the fact that the pastores, the pastors, had their fundamental obligation to preach the message of the scriptures, and the faithful had the essential task of internalizing the meaning of the scriptures. That is, making them their, their own, as a measure of life, and that measure, of course, determined by their love of God and their, and their, and their love of neighbor. How did Gregory read the scriptures? Um, Let's see if we can get uh, slide, um, slide eight here. Are we doing the slide on the three? Uh, Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, For Gregory, the scriptures had three levels of meaning. As he says in this text, there are some parts where you go through an historical exposition. That's the, the historical message. Um, but we also trace out an allegory upon investigation's typical meaning. That's the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament as proving the centrality of Christ at the founder of the church. Some we open in lessons of moral teaching alone are allegorically conveyed. And this of course was the personal appropriation. After you've learned the truth about Christ and the church, you make that teaching your own in moral interpretation. So there's the historical interpretation, there's the typical interpretation, or what we might say the typological, another word for it, and then there's the moral, medieval's often called it the tropological interpretation, where we make that meaning our own in our personal lives. And Gregory says, you know, you should try to do all three meanings, but some texts in scripture don't have, uh, you know, literal meanings, Um, but almost all will have some kind of typical meaning or allegorical meaning, he uses those terms interchangeably, but they should all have a very, very important uh, personal appropriation that is a morality, uh, a typology. He'll also insist that all this interpretation has one goal, And the goal is a deeper appropriation of the life of Christ. Biblical interpretation is Christological interpretation. The Old Testament for Gregory and for the great fathers are always Christologically interpreted. And they cast light upon the New Testament just as the life of Jesus and the life of the early church cast life upon the Old Testament. So it's a fundamentally uh, Christological form of, uh, of interpretation. Now, on the basis of this very subtle, uh, in its own way, and you know, very, uh, if you will, malleable form of interpretation, Gregory constructs a theology, a biblically based theology, and it's a theology that's not so much uh, speculative. It talks about Trinity and you know the constitution of Christ and grace and the like, but those aren't his main concerns. His main concerns are practical and you might say practical in the sense of ecclesiological. That is, they are directed to the church as the saving body of Christ in the world and the role of the church and the different orders in the church. Gregory is one of the first um, medieval thinkers to talk about three orders in the church, those who preach, those who are uh, the continentes as he calls them, Know, those who are celibate these are the monks and then most of the clergy and then the married but he sees the kind of interaction between each of those three because he's very and uh, em- he emphasizes to a great extent the um the concordia the agreement of the different orders in the church both himself as bishop of rome the order of bishops and then these three orders of the Predicatores, continentes, and coniugate. He had a high view of the papacy, like his predecessor Leo I, but it was not in any sense an authoritarian view of the papacy. He believed the bishop of Rome was the first among equals, and he treated other bishops both in the east and the west, uh, you know, in, in that way. He would disagree with them on certain kinds of things, but he never thought of himself as somehow above the church. He was a part of the church law, given a unique position in this concordia of, of the church. But if you're gonna say something about uh, Gregory's theology, and here I get to the more significant dimension, I call it maybe the mystical uh, dimension of uh, of Gregory's thought. I think we'd wanna call it a, an experiential theology, based upon his own experience, which. He, doesn't talk about very often, but primarily directed to his audience to invite them to experience the fundamental saving uh, saving mysteries. And um, here I want to talk about uh, four terms uh, briefly, and then we'll kind of open it up. we have a couple of readings that relate to these. The first term is flesh, caro. Second term is desire, desiderium. The third term is compunction, compunctio, piercing. And the fourth term, very central to Gregory, is contemplatio, that is contemplation. First, uh, caro, flesh, or carnalis, which is, of course, a very, very biblical term. And if you read Gregory as a number of medieval authors, you often get a kind of Pessimistic idea that they're really Against human life And they're really against uh, The whole created world, etc That's not really true If you read him more closely Gregory distinguished between Karo yuxta naturam The flesh according to nature Which was good had been created by God And then what he called the caro yuxta The flesh according to sin Adam sin Which of course was the frailty of fallen flesh under which under which we all live. So Gregory was a strong supporter of the goodness of human flesh as created by God. Indeed, he got into a big quarrel with the patriarch of Constantinople about the reality of the resurrection of the body, where the patriarch wanted to say, well, it's kind of spiritual. Gregory said, uh-uh. Cairo, the flesh is important. It has to be resurrected. But Gregory realized that we lived in a... We live in a situation where the flesh is fallen, and it's uh, the frailty of the fallen flesh, which is both a curse insofar as it leads us to sin, but it's also an opportunity in the sense that it keeps us humble through the suffering that we have to undergo. And here you see what I call the oscillation of polarities in Gregory's thought. It's always trying to balance one side against the other side. And in that sense, uh, the the flesh, even according to sin, is both a curse, but it's also an opportunity because our suffering and our failure, our inability to do the good often, is something that allows us to accept humbly the need for for God's grace. So for Gregory, Cairo is not an opposition between body and soul, but it's an opposition between terrestrial life and heavenly life. And it's an opportunity to use, you know, what we undergo every day uh, in, in our suffering, as as a way to get closer to God. Compunction, compunction. I don't think we talk much about compunction today, but it was a crucial theme for um, medieval Christians and others. Uh, it goes back, of course, to Acts, the book of Acts, two thirty-seven. Peter's speech right after Pentecost, you know, he talks about the um, the meaning of Jesus. And uh, uh, this is Acts 2, 37. And his audience is pierced to the heart. And they say to the apostles, what must we do? They're pierced to the heart. And compunction is this notion of piercing. It's also very close to the whole notion of conversion uh, that the New Testament expresses in, in the term metanoia. That is, it's it's a fundamental value of the Christian life, compunction. And it's a basic uh, sorrow for sin, religious awe, sense of detachment from the world, a longing for God, even a kind of joy in God. And Gregory talks about compunction over and over again. And medieval authors, especially monastic, but others also talked about, about compunction. And he says there are two main kinds of compunction. This is very important. And you have the text here two main kinds of compunction because the soul thirsting for God is first pierced with fear and later with love. First of a come with weeping, when she sees her sins and eternal punishment, then fear abates, kind of security is born from the confidence of pardon intellectual soul is inflamed with a love for the heavenly joys. So you need both kinds of compunction. You need to start with compunction of fear over your status as sinner. He calls this the lower... The lower watering, actually, or in inferius, but then it's supposed to move you on to the higher uh, watering, which is the compunction of love. So the movement from the compunction of fear up to the compunction of love is a necessary part of the whole of the whole Christian life, and I think it's something that uh, I probably would, you know, portray or, or certainly invite more uh, reflection today. But to move on, because our time grows short here, to contemplation. And I have a couple of texts with contemplation that uh, we may be able to, uh, universal call to contemplation, that's a good one. Contemplation, the Greek theoria was not, of course, created by, um, by Gregory. It's often discussed in the earlier fathers from Origen to Augustine and various others, But nobody talks more about contemplation than Gregory does. One scholar has shown it and might mention the word over 300 times, contemplatio, the word contemplario over a hundred times. Contemplation for Gregory is the essence of salvation, which is something we probably don't think of today. But for Gregory, contemplation was what God created man, humanity to do human beings were created to contemplate God. And this goes through four different stages in the course of salvation history. And by the way, there's a very important text here, I won't read it out because our time is short, from his book of dialogues, the preface to the fourth book, where he lays this out in detail. Before the fall, Adam was created as a perfect earthly contemplative. His mind was directed to God. Wasn't the full contemplation in heaven, but it was the most perfect contemplation on earth. The fall destroys all that, so that after Adam, under the realm of sin, there's no possibility for contemplation. Humanity is, you know, is is really in a wholly different kind of situation, without the ability to uh, to turn to God. The third stage in the history of contemplation is the history of redemption. And here I will just read, I have the text here. Up, uh, this third stage. It was for this reason that the creator of the visible and invisible worlds came as the only begotten of the Father to redeem the human race and send the Holy Spirit into our hearts. From him we were to receive new life in order to believe those truths of which we as yet had no knowledge through experience. All of us therefore have received this spirit as a pledge of our inheritance and no longer, no longer doubting about the existence of invisible things. So Christ comes to restore the possibility of at least some contemplation in our in our lives at the present time. Uh, you're gonna be hearing about um, Anselm uh, of uh, Canterbury and uh, his famous question, why the God-man, cur deus homo? Gregory the Great's cur deus homo is to restore contemplation. Only the God-man could restore contemplation. Of course, Since the coming of Christ, our contemplation is partial, it's limited, it's always imperfect, but it's the fundamental meaning of life for Gregory, and it leads us forward to the fourth stage of contemplation, which is of course the the full and final contemplation which is going to come come in heaven. So Gregory talks uh, uh, quite a bit about contemplation, And there are many ways to uh, uh, describe this. I could read a number of the texts and some of them are on your list there. But one of the things I want, uh, two things I want to point out before I close uh, my, my part of this is, first of all, contemplation is universal for Gregory. It's a universal call. And secondly, you always have to have mutual relationship between contemplation and action. And uh, you have a a text there on the universal call to contemplation, which you can read. But I want to read one other, which I didn't uh, send on to the organizers. This is from Gregory's homily on Ezekiel 2.5, and because it puts it even more, uh, more directly. He says, the gift of contemplation is not given just to the highest, that's the clergy, and not just to the least, these are the ordinary people, but frequently to the highest, frequently to the least, more frequently to those set apart. This is Latin, remoti. That is the monks, and sometimes even the married receive it. I'd be glad to hear. The point here is sepe, frequently. And then he concludes: therefore, there is no Christian state from which the grace of contemplation can be excluded. There is no Christian state from which the grace of contemplation can be excluded. So it's a, it's a universal call. It's not just for the religious, the monks, and the others. It's not just for the clergy. Contemplation is the goal for for all Christians. Gregory's doctrine of contemplation is, you know, exceptionally complicated, and it would take it would take another lecture, at least as long as this or more, to uh, to outline its different uh, its different implications. But just to close. What Gregory does insist, though, and he spends more time on this than any other ancient patristic uh, author, is that contemplation is never separate from action. The Christian is called both to be a contemplative and to be active in the world. And he uses it both in the regular pastoralis, the pastoral rule, and elsewhere. He uses uh, many, many scriptural models, but especially he uses the model of Jesus because he talks in several places about Jesus, preaching to the crowds, healing uh, the sick, and doing all sorts of good works. But then at night, he would go up to the mountain to pray to his father. So the ideal of the Christian life, difficult as it may be, is this balance between contemplation and action. And here I'll close by uh, you know, just citing one text, is again from the homily in Ezekiel uh, in book two. Uh, homily two by means of the active life, we ought to pass to the contemplative life, and sometimes by what we have seen within the mind, the contemplative life should better recall us to the active life. So, you have to be both, as Gregory teaches us. Thank you, wonderful.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Professor McGinn. We'll start the, the Q&A. Uh, I can rem- let me remind folks that uh, there's a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. You can send them on to us and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll read them out. Uh, we have a first question here from okay. uh, Dominicus Mocus. The question is, at the time of Gregory, was it customary to dictate writings to a scribe as you were describing in the illustration or to write oneself or was it just whichever method was most convenient or most, most economically suitable?
2: Almost all the writing was uh, communicated to a scribe. Mm. That is you, you, you read and, and your scribe took, uh, took things down and that lasts at least until the 12th or the 13th century. You know, e- even Thomas Aquinas, you know, the Summa, he spoke and he communicated to his, uh, you know, a, a team of scribes who were taking this stuff down. So that's the standard medieval pattern a few people did write on their own, but most uh, dictated. We don't have as many scribes around anymore.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, we, the, the second question is from Joe Rutten and it's on the uh, Gregory's exegetical methods and especially uh, Genesis. Uh, Joe wrote, does Gregory offer any exegesis on Genesis 1, 1- through 11, that is chapters one through 11, specifically his understanding of origins and the myths of those chapters as it relates to his threefold exegetical methodology.
2: That's an interesting question. Uh, Gregory never wrote a commentary on Genesis, although many of his predecessors and and, and followers did. A lot of uh, passages on Genesis are cited in the course of the Moralia and also in, in Ezekiel, but I don't, uh, I can't recall anything about Genesis one, uh, you know, specifically jumping out at me in in, in reading, in, in reading, um, in reading Gregory. It's that uh, he may well have thought, of course, he was a great student of Augustine and Augustine wrote five commentaries on Genesis. And he may well have thought that Augustine had said what needed to be said.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, we had that answers another question uh, that that we had uh, posed to us about Gregory's familiarity with with the writings of Augustine. You've already said he he was pretty well versed, would you say, in in august Augustine's writings?
2: Very, very much so. I mean, in in, in a certain sense, uh, that was his primary, I think theoli- after the scriptures, Augustine was his primary theological resource. and you you can see that by, you know, re- reading through his works. Now, you know, some, I was going to quote early on, uh, Adolf Harnack's Dogmende Geschichte back at the end of the 19th century, you know, said that uh, Gregory's uh, Augustinianism, and he recognized he was deeply Augustinian, was a kind of vulgar Catholicism, a vulgar Catholicism, a kind of, you know, uh, dumbing down of Augustine. Hmm. I don't think that's the case at all. Gregory's interests were different from Augustine's. He's not A speculative mind. He doesn't write a De Trinitate. He doesn't write treatises on, you know, on grace and freedom, etc. But he was deeply imbued with Augustine. And uh, I think he has to be thought of in the main line of medieval Augustinians.
1: Hmm. Continue on this on this theme of of influence and and debt. Uh, You mentioned that um, uh, Luther was very favorable towards uh, towards Gregory. Um, uh, Nindyo Sasango, po- whose name I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering, apologies, uh, asked, could you say a little bit more about the influence of Gregory on Luther? Do you think that Luther's own exegetical approach was influenced by Gregory? Hmm.
2: That's a very interesting question, and I have not investigated that in detail, but my feeling is that, um, that Luther was very much influenced by Gregory, and Gregory has a sense of the um, uh, was, uh, several quotations that I had, but I didn't have time to. Gregory has a sense that the closer we get to God, in some ways, the more terrifying it is, because we begin to recognize the difference between God's supreme immensity and our own frailty, our own, our own sinfulness. And of course, this is a very important part of, of Luther's notion of, uh, uh, of the hidden God, and uh, Luther says over and over again in his writings. I do, I do know these texts. You know that Gregory is one of the few popes who was any good. How how he loves to read Gregory and had great fruit from uh, from reading Gregory. So uh, there's a, probably a literature on this about you know the details of the influence of of uh, the actual influence, the details of it of uh, Gre- Gregory on Luther, but. You know Luther, as well as as Calvin and other reformers, Gregory was one of the few good guys. Everybody <laughs> read Gregory. Hmm.
1: Um, that's that's uh, that's that's very helpful. Uh, we've had a couple questions about Gregory on on desire and especially the second step of desire, and one question uh, from. Uh, uh, from fans of ours, uh, for, of yours, excuse me, at, at Villanova, about Gregory's commentary on the Song of Psalms. Um, Does what is what is Gregory's thought on, on the Song of Psalms and and, speci- and the question of desire and
2: contemplation? Yeah. Well, you know, desiderium is one of the major themes in Gregory, and I had announced this early on, but didn't have time to really uh, go into it. I mean, he's been called the Doctor of Desires by uh, by some uh, students of his. And he is an important commentator on the Song of Songs. His commentary on the Song of Songs, which its authenticity authenticity was doubted some decades ago, but now I think that's been cleared up and it's pretty much agreed that it's actually his. Uh, His commentary is primarily an ecclesiastical, ecclesiological commentary. That is, the bride is identified with the church. But he did know Origen on the song, and uh, he did know Ambrose on the song, and so therefore within his commentary there are important uh, texts uh, with regard to the language of the song as indicative of the individual desire of the soul for contact with uh, with uh, the divine bridegroom, and uh, so much so that William of Saint Thierry, twelfth century uh, Cistercian you know, put together not only texts from Gregory's commentary, which is only partial, but a lot of other texts from other writings of Gregory into a kind of full commentary on the Song of Songs. So it well it well repays modern reading, I think, although it's primarily in the early medieval vein of ecclesiological commentary. There's a kind of mystical richness to some passages, if that's an adequate answer without going into... Details.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, uh, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying to read read up on questions as we go. Um, there's, there's, okay. there's quite a lot. We won't have to we won't be able to do too many more. Uh, um, I'm here. <laughs> but um, uh, let's see. There's there's a couple questions on meditation and contemplation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I'm going to group a, a two of them together. One of them is asking about does the distinction between meditation and contemplation, uh, does Gregory make such a distinction or does he see the two as, as, as melding into each other? And secondly, how does Gregory's understanding of contemplation, uh, how does that, uh, how, how might we distinguish that from Aquinas's notion? Uh, do, do you find uh, Eastern thoughts? You mentioned theoria as, um, Uh, Earlier in there, we know he went to Constantinople, and Gregory is famous for having some Eastern thought uh, coming into his. Well, at least some scholars have made this case. Yeah, sure. Yeah, do you see uh, any influence on that, or or how would you distinguish it from uh, Thomistic understandings of
2: contemplation? That's uh, those are good questions, and let me try to answer them relatively uh, relatively briefly. I don't think that uh, Gregory makes any sharp distinction between meditatio and contemplatio. He sees these as kind of flowing together. He concentrates primarily on uh, on contemplatio. But both those terms were very widely used in the in the patristic and uh, the patristic past, and even in the medieval period, of the twelfth century and thirteenth century, and they begin to distinguish you know between lectio, reading and meditatio meditation, then oratio prayer, and then contemplatio twelfth century and afterwards, they see those very much as a continuum rather than discrete kinds of operations. And I think, I think that's very much the case with Gregory. Gregory's notion of meditatio, uh, I think is best described as a very practical and even if you would say a kind of diffuse notion. For him, contemplation, contemplatio, is any kind of attentive regard, primarily attentive regard to God as the primary source and author, author of all things. So he's not very interested in definitions of contemplatio. Thomas Aquinas is in a different kind of world. It's a scholastic world. It's a world using uh, the distinctions of Aristotle's uh, kind of thought. And Thomas Aquinas is interested in defining uh, exactly what contemplatio is. Is there a fundamental difference? I don't think so. There's a difference in approach. Difference in approach between a late antique author uh, who's primarily what we'd say today, I suppose, a practical theologian, a pastoral theologian, and then Thomas Aquinas, who is writing for a, a more scholastic audience where he wants to talk about definitions and he wants to try to put this within an intellectual framework. But I don't think that if you, and by the way, Thomas Aquinas cites Gregory the Great as one of the primary authorities on contemplatio. If you read the parts in the Summa and the parts in the, uh, you know, in the disputed questions on truth, uh, uh, on contemplation, nobody is cited more frequently than Gregory the Great. So Thomas thought of his teaching on contemplatio, even though he's expressing it in a different way, totally in conformity with what Gregory had set out. I think. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think maybe d- time for just one more question um, there, there are several there's several uh, questions on uh, how does how does Gregory want us to practice contemplation we we've mentioned that contemplation should be part of the act of life or we're sent back from the active of life into contemplation and from contemplation back into the active of life mm-hmm. does he have I does he does this have how does this work in practice? Is this Alexia Divina? Is it, is it saying rosaries? Is it saying the divine office? Is it participation in, in the liturgy? And uh, a third question was part of this is um, how does one purify one, one's contemplation? How does one, I guess, begin in, in moving into this, this, this realm?
2: Okay, well, Gregory, of course, you know he's very much uh, a Pope of the liturgy uh, he's very much a pope of the prayer of the church, et cetera. These are all part of the whole life. But with regard to contemplation self, I think there's two things that could be kept in mind. Uh, the first is to separate oneself from the world. And the second one is to practice silence. These allow you to fix your attention on God. Now, of course, you can't do that for your, you know, for your entire life. Gregory found it very hard. He was, it was easier when he was a monk. When he's a uh, bishop, and uh, you know, bishop of Rome, it's much, much more difficult. But this is very evident, for instance, in his life of Benedict, that you know, Benedict withdraws from the world, and then he uh, uh, withdraws, in a sense, into himself, and then he can be raptured above himself. So there is a need for personal withdrawal, insofar as that's possible. Gregory was hard when he spoke, but he was still trying to do it. And then there's a need for silence. Gregory over and over again emphasizes the need for, for silence. And then there's the concentration of the attentive regard towards God, which is what contemplatio you know, means, uh, means for him. So he doesn't, it's not like Ignatius of Loyola or later methods of prayer. That's not the uh, way in which people did things in the patristic period, but there are certain basic values and practices that need to be observed. And I think, uh, you know, as I said, the fundamental ones are withdrawal, silence, and then concentrating the attention on, uh, on, on God.
1: And maybe I'll jump in as a quick follow-up. Um, uh, Ryan Bingham asked about uh, detachment. Uh, and as you were just describing this withdrawal, silencing, this also seems to be evoking a kind of sense of detachment to move into contemplation. Do you see some? Uh, well, of course, you're the expert on Meister Eckhart as well. Do you see uh, some some similarities, some 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 similar patterns between Gregory and and the later medieval mystic?
2: Oh, I, I think they're great. I, I think they're great similarities. I, I mean, I think this is uh, the part of the history of Christian mysticism has been the need for separation and detachment. Uh, it's called in different ways. It's practiced in different forms over the course of the history of mysticism. And I'm not saying that in any way that uh, Gregory the Great is the same as Meister Eckhart's, but I think that they both speak within that, that broad framework of the necessity for detaching the self from the ordinary practices and uh, you know confusions and distractions of, of, of present life in order to go apart to be silent, and to uh, begin, begin to pray.
1: All right. Well, we all have time on our hands now, uh, in which to take Gregory's words and and to uh, go and do likewise. Uh,
2: well, let me th- turn it back to Michael. Yeah, well, thank you. I just again a word of thanks to all those who are listening to this. Uh, uh, it's it's very unusual, uh, but for me it's kind of a new thing to do. But th- thank you all for setting it up.
0: Well, and on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute, um, I want to thank you, Professor McGinn, for a very enlightening presentation. Um, and I think I would agree with Rob and everyone else who joined here that the wisdom of Gregory the Great is particularly relevant to us at this time. Um, we, who, all of us who are in, in enforced withdrawal, um, mm-hmm. though we, haven't, we have to take additional steps to both uh, find silence and also detachment. Um, Everyone can join us next week for two special events uh, next week on Thursday, April 16th at 7 p.m. This series continues um, with a webinar by Aaron Canty, continuing this session on Anselm of Canterbury on the Rationality of Faith. And on Friday, April 17th, we will host a special event on the fifth anniversary of Cardinal George's death, a panel on American contributions to Catholic social thought featuring Russell Hittinger, Stephen Schneck, and Teresa Smart. All of our webinars are being done live, but they will all also be made available later as recording on our website. And if you enjoyed this programming, I invite you also to help support us um, by donating at our website at www.lumingchristie.org/donate. Otherwise, please join me one more time um, in thanking Professor McGinn. Um, I'm sure uh, he can't hear your applause from where he's at now. (laughs) Um, My my,
2: my wife is applauding in the background.
0: (laughs) And thank you all. And please join us again next week.